0: So, the Bible, immigration, and the law. This was not the series I was planning on kicking off July 1st. It was going to be this lighthearted series about all the summer blockbusters and talking about spiritual themes. in um, and, But the reality is, a couple weeks ago, as the national debate over immigration escalated and escalated, I was really convicted to so say, you know what, we need to talk about this. Because people would ask me questions. And, and I decide. okay, we're gonna spend a couple weeks. Movies can wait, movies can always wait. But here, we're gonna spend a couple weeks. And, and my goal, my goal for this series is to help you think biblically about these two challenging topics. This week, the Bible and immigration. Next week, the Bible and the law. And, and there are a lot of ways we can think about these topics. We can think about them politically economically, legally, emotionally, personally. But if you're a Christian, God calls us to look at things biblically, first and foremost, and that's what I want to help you do. So I want to help you give you some tools and some insights to help think about this issue today for immigration biblically. So, unless you've been living in, under a rock or you've been in a K-drama coma for the last few weeks, you know immigration is one of the hottest topics in America right now. In fact, it could go down this year, could go down as kind of the year of immigration. Um, and so so it's huge. It's in the news all the time. You cannot ex- escape it. In fact, there are two big immigration-related uh, topics and issues going on right now. So the first and, and clearly the foremost, the, the biggest one has been lately President Trump's zero tolerance immigration policy. Um, and this is something that has resulted in the separation of over 2,000 kids from their parents down at the Mexico US border. You've probably heard, watched news clips about this, read the headlines. Um, so that, and that's been going on. And, and as a little side note, not about a week or so after uh, Trump signed that he has now ended that specific policy. Next, the second issue at hand is the travel ban. This is a travel ban to some majority Muslim countries Um, and this was an executive order signed by President Trump that restricted, that actually suspended some refugee programs, not all of them, but some of them, um, and then restricted admission from seven uh, from seven different countries, the majority of which were Muslim-majority countries, all but uh, five out of the seven. Um, and then just this week, the Supreme Court upheld this, this latest version of the travel ban. This was the third iteration, the third version. Um, the previous two had been shot down, but this one was finally approved. Um, and so sometimes, so literally probably since January, Immigration has been in the news at least every other week, if not even every other, every day. You can't escape this. And my guess is at some point through all of this, some point, even once, you started to ask yourself, what does the Bible say about all this? What does the Bible say? Well, before I answer that, I want to start with five statements Five statements about what I'm carrying into this sermon. I believe it's really important, it's critically important that we all own our baggage. And that's what I'm doing here. So five statements. First, this is a complex issue. Here are just some of the the areas and and pieces, a part of this issue. Politics, economics, the law, foreign affairs, national security, unemployment, worker exploitation, school and health systems, poverty, social inequality, citizenship, DACA, DREAMers, Republicans, Democrats. All of that is wrapped up in the issues of immigration. There is no simple solution. So that's the first thing. This is a complex issue. The second thing is this is an emotional issue. If, you, if you've been watching any of the news clips, reading the headlines, particularly the last couple weeks with the, with the um, zero tolerance policy, and you, to see kit pictures and video of children crying out for their parents and sleeping in what are virtually cages, that is heartbreaking. And I don't care who you are. You could be the most staunch Republican nationalist seeing kids scared and alone, that should pull at your heartstrings. So this is an emotional issue. This isn't just intellectual. Third, I'm a registered Republican. I have been since I could vote at 18. Um, and I don't always vote on party lines. And as I've gotten older, I seem to vote less and less on party lines. Um, in the last election, I voted for Hillary. Uh, despite my many disagreements with her uh, because I had more disagreements with Trump. So I crossed party lines on that one and voted Democrat. Um, But what's interesting is as I've watched the Republican Party develop over the last two years, uh, earlier this year I actually decided that I wanted to change my party affiliation. I decided that I no longer wanted to be associated with the Republicans. Um, So I looked into it and as it turns out Minnesota does not require party affiliation registration. So what I registered back in California when I was living out there doesn't really matter out here. Uh, Fourth. Fourth thing I'm carrying into this is I am a white male in America and also in this church. So I understand that I exist in a place of power and privilege. And so because of that, I believe that I need to handle this issue with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of thoughtfulness that because simply by my whiteness and maleness it is it would be easy for me to abuse my position or my privilege in in sharing opinions about this so that's the fourth and fifth lastly is for most of you in here, most of you are children of immigrants. Not all of you, but the majority of you. Some of you are even first-generation immigrants. You came to this country. And, and so immigration, for many of you, immigration is not an abstract idea like it is for me. I mean, my family immigrated here, but that was about four or five generations back. So I am detached from From immigration most of you are not so some of you if you're old enough some of you can still remember life in Laos and fleeing fleeing the the Vietnamese fleeing the soldiers crossing the river going to the refugee camp those are still fresh memories and then coming to America for the first time so for for a lot of you this is a deeply personal issue it's not simply an intellectual or abstract issue So, those are five things I'm putting on the table. And then one little last piece here is I just want to give you all a heads up. I'm probably going to go a little longer than usual. um, But if you stick with me, I think it's worth it. Uh, I think think what, what I'll be talking about today is going to be worth an extra five, seven minutes of hanging around here. So, my goal here, as I said, is I want to inject some new ideas into our collective beliefs and assumptions. One of the fundamentals of the Christian faith is that we see things through the lens of Scripture. Now, that can be, a lot of people use different terms for that. Some people describe it as having a biblical worldview, other people describe it as being gospel centered. Still, others describe it as seeing the world through God's eyes. So however you, however you describe it, that's what I want to do today. Because chances are, you probably have an opinion on immigration. And however that opinion was developed, today I want to help you develop an opinion about immigration, but by doing it through looking at it through a biblical lens. Okay. So to do that, I want to give you four big picture Biblical principles. So we're not going to focus on a single passage today. Next week we will. But this week I want to give you four big picture biblical principles that I believe can be helpful in guiding our thoughts about immigration. This isn't a discussion about policy. You'd have to talk to someone way smarter and way more informed than I um, to do that. And this isn't, this isn't about a Republican plan or a, rep, or a Democratic plan. This isn't even really about plans or even opinions. You are welcome to develop whatever opinion about immigration that you want. But if you're a believer, what's not optional is you have to be able to look through it through a biblical lens. So that's what I want to help you do today. So four big principles. These things can shape how we think. Not necessarily what you think. I'm not here to prescribe a certain opinion. But the scripture can help us figure out how to think about immigration. So, the first big picture biblical principle. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God. See, we have to start here. Because it's a very natural and very sinful human tendency to distance ourselves from the other. Oftentimes, we even vilify or demonize the other if our opinions are, and, and our feelings around them are that strong. So we separate them and we use language. We use language, we use statistics, we use generalizations to put the other in their place. And it's usually below us. So we separate ourselves from whoever the other might be for you. And when we do that, it makes us more comfortable about ourselves. And if you've got some ego to feed, it can actually make you feel puffed up. And this is probably, and to be honest, this is probably My biggest criticism of President Trump is he uses playground insults as political policy. And it's always bothered me. As a guy who got called lots of names growing up, it really bothers me when people call other people names. Because it dehumanizes them. It puts them down. And and that's what we do with the other. And that's what President Trump does. And on the topic of immigration, I, he's particularly heinous. These are just some of the words he's used. Infesting. They're animals. Drug dealers, rapists, and criminals. They're living in hell. And please pardon the language. Coming from shithole countries. And that's, that's just appalling. Appalling. and that doesn't even include his some of his racially charged tweets against people of color and this is one of the things that bothers me the most because he uses dehumanizing language for anybody that opposes him and that includes immigrants so whatever you think about immigrants or immigration For a Christian, this is not an option. In the very first chapter of Genesis, the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, in the story of creation, in talking about people, here's what it says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every person who has ever lived, Every person you're uncomfortable with, every personal person criminal or law-abiding. every person coming into this country legally or illegally. every person is made in the image of God. Now there's a theological debate about exactly what that means, what the image of God means, and I'm not going to dive into the deep end on that one, but what it does say. Is that every person, in every person, is a reflection, is a component of God. Every person has infinite value and worth in God's eyes. And as a result, every person deserves worth, respect, and compassion. So whatever your views on immigration or the zero-tolerance policy, whatever your views, they have to be grounded in honoring the value and dignity of every single person. You can't take some people and devalue them. Because immigrants are a people to love, not a problem to solve. So the first is that every person is made in the image of God. Second big picture principle. Second big picture biblical principle is this. The Bible is a story of migrations. See, when the issue of immigration first came up, um, there are a lot of Christians quoting some of the Old Testament laws calling the the Israelites to care for the foreigners and the immigrants. And that's good. And we're going to talk about those. But it misses a bigger picture that the entire Bible is a story of people migrating. It's all over there. It's all over scripture. There are immigrants, there are refugees. All throughout scripture there are people seeking asylum. There are people driven out of their country by war, famine, ethnic cleansing. We see it all through Scripture. Genesis begins with Adam and Eve. And they're driven out, because of their disobedience of God, they're driven out of the only home they've ever known, the garden. And then it ends with the Apostle John as an exiled prisoner on the Greek island of Patmos who's left there to die. But before that, he receives the revelation of Jesus and writes the book of Revelation. And in between, in between, the, all of these stories, if you grew up in church and you, you remember Sunday school stories and people, it is filled with migrations. So Cain, remember Cain and Abel? Cain is forced to want as a wanderer. To be punished for killing his brother Abel. Noah and his family, they literally become the first boat people when God chooses to destroy nearly the whole world. Abraham was called by God out of his home country of Ur and told to go to a land that God will tell him later. He didn't even know where he was going. So he and his family had to up and go. Joseph... Joseph was a victim of human trafficking. He was sold and taken into another land and eventually landed up in Egypt. Moses, Moses fled prosecution in Egypt for killing a man, and he fled out into the desert of Midian. The Israelites, after the Exodus, the the Israelites were nationless wanderers. They were nomads for 40 years through the desert before they entered into the promised land of Canaan. David, he had to flee political persecution under King Saul, who wanted to kill him. Ruth, Ruth was a migrant worker. She, when her, her husband died, and she was left alone, and she had to work in a foreign country. The Israelites themselves, when, when Israel was taken over, the Israelites were scattered all around the neighboring countries. They were were either driven out of their homeland or they were taken into captivity to Babylon. Even Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they were political refugees. When the king was was trying to kill this new baby king, they fled to Egypt, literally for their lives. So the the Bible is a story of migrations. It is full of it. Now, Do any of these stories have any direct impact on immigration reform? No, they don't. But reading the Bible with an eye for migration, keeping your eyes open to the number of times people have to leave their homeland and go into a new land, I think it can develop a greater appreciation in us for the, the people today who have to do that. And those are the challenges that immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers face as they leave their homeland, sometimes by no choice of their own, and come here to America. So that's the second big picture biblical principle. Third, the third one that I want to talk about here is the Bible consistently advocates for the powerless. The Bible consistently advocates for the powerless. Over and over and over again in Scripture, God demonstrates his heart for the powerless, the oppressed, the helpless, and the low-status people. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, this, this primarily comes out in laws Describing how the Israelites should treat three protected groups of people. Widows, orphans, and foreigners. See, these are three groups of people that would have a very difficult time supporting themselves in a new land. Or in the land that they've always lived. Widows and orphans, and then foreigners. its Very difficult to work if you're one of those three sorts of people. It was difficult to provide income for you, for your family. And, and, and it was primarily because they lacked a, the larger family clan system. When a woman lost her husband, she sort of lost the clan. Orphans have no parents. And there's, there was no adoption agency. There was no foster care. And so orphans literally were helpless. And then foreigners were coming into a different land, possibly not speaking the language, not having those clan connections, and, uh, and often had to try to f- do their best to find work. So there were these three protected groups that are repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Okay? So here's, here's one verse. One verse happens to include all of them. This is Deuteronomy 10.18. The Lord defends the cause of the fatherless, and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Now, that's just one verse. This one particularly mentions the foreigner as well. In fact, in all the Old Testament, there are 92 verses commanding the Israelites to care for the foreigners in their land. That is huge. 92 times over and over again. Care for the foreigners. Um, in different versions, in different Bible translations, you might have read these as the aliens in your land. Uh, in the, there's a there's a new translation that just recently came out that actually translated this word as immigrants. The foreigners are the immigrants in your land. So I literally I could read scripture for 15 minutes straight to read all excuse me to read all of the commands. That God gave to take care of the foreigners, the immigrants. That's amazing. 15 minutes straight of Bible. So that's what I'm going to do. No, okay. I'm not going to do that. Okay. (laughs) You all got really scared for a moment there. (laughs) But see, the Old Testament doesn't just stop there with these three protected groups. Widows, orphans, foreigners. It doesn't just stop there. It consistently advocates for the rights of the powerless. So here are just a couple of the literally dozens of examples. Psalm 82. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Next, Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And Jesus did the same. He broke virtually all cultural and societal rules by valuing women, the sick, the poor, children, sinners, who society rejected, and Samaritans, who were mixed-race Jews. In the Jews' eyes, they were half-breeds. Jesus valued all of them. And if you want to look for the stars, the superstars of the Gospels, it's actually these people. It's not the apostles, it's not the religious leaders, the pastors, the rabbis. Nope. It's these people. And then, in one of Jesus' most powerful parables, one you've probably even heard, is here's what he says. Matthew 25, almost the end of the book of Matthew. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That was a defining parable of what Jesus valued. And it should be a defining principle, a defining parable. For what the church values and what we as individual Christians value is the least of these brothers and sisters. Now, the church in Acts, they cared for the the same folks. The church in Acts cared for the widows. They made sure the foreign, the Grecian um, widows and orphans were taken care of. They took a collection for the poor in Jerusalem repeated over and over again. If you look at Scripture, it is absolutely undeniable. The Bible consistently advocates for the powerless. And as a result, I think we as Christians should too. So the last big biblical principle that I'm going to talk about today. So the last one I'm going to talk about today is this. The story of them is the story of us. Now, this one I understand needs a little explanation. Let me explain. Us versus them language is very common in politics, especially over the last sort of two, three, four years. It's really escalated. it's, It's not Democrats and Republicans. It's Democrats versus Republicans. And groups on each side tend to try to make the others sound bad by using us versus them language. And the us language is always good, and the them language is always bad. And they do that to create distance, to put the other people in their place, which is usually lower is to try to essentially say, we are the right way to go, they are the wrong way to go. And we see this us versus them language, all of, really it's in any rivalry. Whether you're talking competing cities, competing sports teams, competing groups and organizations, or competing politicians. And it's widely agreed upon the solution for us versus them language. The solution for that is to see the common humanity between two groups or two people. To look, look more at the similarities versus the differences. And you see that. That's, that's very common. You see that pretty much all the time when people are addressing us versus them language. Okay? Now, and it works. This is true. In fact, it's so true, God started it like 4,000 years ago. In all of these commands God was giving to the Israelites, he did something really unique. He didn't just say, care for the foreigners because it's a good thing to do. Care for the foreigners because they're helpless. Care for the foreigners because it's the morally right thing to do. No. He gave a reason. He gave a why to the what he was commanding. And here it is. You can find it. Remember that verse that I read earlier, the Deuteronomy verse? Here's what we read earlier. The Lord defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You want to know what the very next verse is? And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Because there was a time in the Israelite history where they were the foreigners. They were the oppressed. They were the slaves in Egypt. They had no power. And so God is reminding them that once they got to the place when they started to have power, Remember, there was a time when you were the oppressed. And by doing so, it creates this sense of empathy. There's actually a word for this. It's called historical empathy. And and this is one of the reasons why, for instance, for those of you who are second generation Hmong or 1.5s and your parents were immigrants, it's a lot easier for you to have empathy for the Central American immigrants coming up through the Mexican border. Because you can experience historical empathy. And just like the Israelites, because God reminded the Israelites, listen, there was a time when you were the oppressed. Don't become the oppressor. And there's a really weird thing that happens sometimes. That those who were once oppressed once they get some power and some privilege, can often become the oppressors. I, so in high school, I, I played water polo. Uh, and back then, so this is high school sports back in the 80s. Hazing, or like kind of teasing, um, that it was kind of bullying. That's probably words we would use today. But this idea of hazing, the, the underclassmen was very common. Where you basically, you just get beaten up as a freshman, and, and you have to go through torture to kind of earn your spot on the team. Very, very normal. That was kind of part of, kind of like military basic training. They're going to beat you up to make you stronger, to make you as a whole. It was miserable, obviously, but it was miserable for every freshman. But here's the amazing thing that happened. So, so we, of course, we, we went through it all when we were freshmen and then became sophomores, and then juniors. And then when we became seniors, I watched my classmates beating up freshmen. I could not understand it. And I remember I actually went to one of them and said, why are you doing this? You hated this. You hated those seniors for constantly beating you up. Why are you doing it? And he said the most interesting thing. He said, well, I had to go through it So they should too. And in my head, I'm like, that is terrible logic. That is horrible. Why would you make someone else suffer? And that's what God was getting at here. Remember, Israelites. There was a time when you were once the powerless. You were the outsiders. You were the oppressed. So remember. Remember those who are now the outsiders among your midst. Now, this statement is repeated over and over again in God's commands, but it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we are constantly called to this sense of spiritual historical empathy. And, And you can find verses in Jesus' teaching and in Paul's teaching that talk about We love others because God first loved us. We forgive others because Christ first forgave us. We have compassion for others because God first had compassion for us. We comfort others because God first comforted us. We see this theme repeated over and over again. You can't escape it. And I believe one of the biggest motivations we should have in thinking about immigration, whatever your thoughts are, it should be that God did things for us first. There was a time when we were unloved. There was a time when we were in distress. There was a time where we were unforgiven. And God loved us. He comforted us. He forgave us. And we need to remember that. And I think for all of us, even if you have no personal connection to immigration, I think all of us can remember a time when we were scared, when we were alone, when we were the other. For me, it actually was my water polo days. I was the other. While, while everybody else's beating stopped freshman year, mine continued through sophomore year and junior year. And the only reason it stopped senior year is there was no one older than me to, to beat me up. And I was the other. I was the beaten down and beaten up. So that's why I, I, it's really easy for me to have compassion on folks who are feeling rejected by their friends. Because I lived through that for a lot of years. And my guess is somewhere in you, you can tap into your historical memories and have some historical compassion, some historical empathy, as you think about immigrants coming across the border. Some because they have to, some because they want to. So the story of them is really the story of us. So, let's review. Four principles that I believe should be able to drive your thinking about immigration. Every person is made in the image of God. The whole Bible is a story of migrations. The Bible consistently advocates for the powerless. And lastly, the story of them is really the story of us. Now, what would it look like to live these out? What would a policy or what would recommendations look like with regard to immigration that would implement these four principles? Now, I could not answer that for you. Again, we need people way smarter, way more informed than than I. So, I did turn to some folks who are way smarter and way more informed. Uh, So, the National Evangelical Association, they put together, back in 2012, they put together a a set of recommendations with regards to immigration. It's a whole document. It's a great document. Um, I'll post it up on Facebook if you want to read more. But here was their summary. Here, and and I loved this because I think this gives an idea of what policy recommendations could look like if they lived out these four principles. Again, I am not advocating for, for a particular policy or a particular political party. That is entirely up to you. But I think they did a really good job looking at immigration through a biblical lens. So... That there are seven principles that they, they urged, they advocated. And what's amazing, this was 2012, and it is just as relevant today, if not maybe even more so than it was back then. One, that immigrants be treated with respect and mercy by churches. Two, that we safeguard our borders and do so with respect for human dignity. Three, Establish a functioning system for entry of immigrant workers. Four, we strengthen families by reconsidering the number of family unification visas that are offered. Five, create an equitable process for earned legal status. Six, we legislate fair labor and civil laws for all. Seven, that immigration enforcement should follow due process. Respect human persons and recognize the importance of family. First time I read that, I was like, okay, that's, that's some policy I could get behind. I, and so I really admire them for coming up with that. If you want to read more, if, if this does not align with, with where you are leaning, that's okay. You don't have to agree with this. But if you are a believer, I do believe you have to look at this through a, a biblical lens. And hopefully by being with, with us today, you've, you've developed, you've learned some tools, learned some ideas that can help you evaluate your own views. You might still come out where you are right now, and that's fine. But if you come out looking at it through a biblical lens, then I think you're, you're honoring Scripture, you're honoring God, and you're honoring Jesus. So that's my challenge. I want to challenge you to think about immigration biblically as we consider immigration and immigrants. Join me in prayer. God, you've created every one of us in your image. Lord, and you you did the most amazing migration of all by sending your son to earth Lord to become fully human and remain fully God and come down to us so I thank you for your son Jesus Christ I thank you that he has forgiven me and for every believer out here, he has forgiven them Lord that he, that he has restored us he has created us into a church God and help us Help us with this sensitive topic. God, let us be hearts that match yours. Let us see with eyes that match yours. Now, if that means we have to reconsider some of our positions or our opinions, uh, God, we beg, be gentle with us. And we beg for your mercy. But God, I, I desire for myself and for River Life to be a church that that looks through a a biblical lens. And I pray that we as a church can be a great place for immigrants, a great place for the scared, the powerless, the oppressed. So let us be wonderful lovers of the people who are different from us. And that's because you first loved us, who are completely different. Oh, God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your heart for immigrants. And I pray for our nation. Lord, I pray for the families down on the border. Bring them comfort. And I pray for policies that, that can honor our nation and our nation's borders and can honor the people who want to come into our nation. And I pray for the politicians, for the Democrats and Republicans. Lord, you transform their heart and soften their language. So we thank you. God, you are good. And I thank you that you love us, not for anything that we do, but exactly for who we are, your creation. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.